Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks so much for being here today. If you're new, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at First Free Church, and we are so glad you're here. Great time of worship this morning, and we get to continue doing it by studying God's Word now. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them to Acts chapter 9. Before we get into that today, uh, the reason why I'm limping a little bit and up here on a stool is because I'm still recovering from some issues with my feet that you may have noticed last week, but I am getting better. So thank you for the prayers. It's getting uh, better a little bit every single day. I also want to mention that next week is our annual meeting here at the church where we cover business. I know, right? It's very exciting. You can take a guess as to who that was that was so excited about that. But uh, at our annual meeting next week after the second service, you're going to want to be there, if you remember here, because we're going to do something new this year. Uh, We are going to introduce a focus for the year, and that's going to come with a lot of extra details and things that will explain um, some some changes that are coming up at the church that we're excited about that that we think are going to really help us as a church. Uh, but the, the focus for this next year, I'll go ahead and give you a sneak preview, is going to be back together. And we're going to explain what exactly that means and what we are doing to try to bring people back together. But coming out of a season of separateness and isolation and a lot of loneliness that's out there, we think this is a perfect time for the church to really take some steps to try to help bring people back together in, in whatever way we can. And so we're going to be introducing a lot of things next week during the annual meeting to that effect. If you want to dive into some of the details of the budget and other things that go on at the church, the time to do that would be today after this service at 1230 up in room 341, which is right over there. We're going to have a pre-annual meeting, and that's where every year for those people that are just gluttons for punishment and want to get into the real fine-tuned details, there's a spot for you can do that today. Ask all your questions. Make them as hard as possible, because the one who leads that meeting is Kevin Crosley, our executive pastor of operations. So, uh, you know, give him a hard time for me if you don't mind. If you're in Acts chapter 9, we are going to be exploring a a really incredible story today. And I guess I'll start by asking you a a question, which is, have you ever known someone that was so awful that you just couldn't imagine them possibly ever becoming a Christian? I mean, they're just terrible. Just a rotten person. Maybe it's a coworker that you really really didn't like and they didn't like you. Maybe it's a kid that's a, a bully or you know, a politician that you know from a distance, but you've seen enough to know that they're just a rotten person and you don't know how they keep getting elected. There are all sorts of people out there that would fit into a category we might call unredeemable from our perspective, where we look at their life and think, how on earth could that guy or that girl possibly become a Christian? And some people put themselves in that category of unredeemable. You may think, hey, I, I've done so many bad things in my life. I've had such a rotten past. I've, I've, I've got so much uh, awfulness in me, and maybe it's not even just the physical things I've done, but you know, Jesus said it, if you, if you dwell on them in your heart, it's as, as bad as if you've committed them. And so you know, maybe you've never killed anybody, but you've certainly wanted to before. And Jesus says, well, that's the same as committing murder. And so there are some people that have, have either by virtue of their thoughts or their actions or their words, they've They've done enough to where they put themselves in that category and think, man, there's no way God would ever want me. There's, there's nothing else for me in this world. And some people, tragically, they fall into depression. Some end up taking their own life because they just think, well, what else is there for me to live for with what I've done? Um, and it's tragic when people go through that. 
But I, I want to tell you, no matter how bad your past is, and sometimes we, we live in the past, we dwell in the past, we can't get past our past, and that can be so discouraging for us, but no matter how bad your past is, you've got nothing on the guy we're going to talk about today, and I'm going to try to prove that to you as we go along. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9. Why don't we pause for just a moment and pray and ask God to bless our time in his word today. Lord, as we open up the book of Acts, written over 2,000 years ago by a guy named Luke, who meticulously researched and recorded all these details for us, we want to thank you for preserving your word. Thank you for teaching us through it even today, a couple thousand years later, and there's still so much we can learn from this God. So I pray that you'd give us open hearts and open minds, um, not just to anything, but to you, receptive to how you want to teach us today, Lord, worshiping you by, by diving into your word together corporately as a group. I pray that it's something we would chew on throughout the week. I pray that we'd take it into our groups and spend time talking about this to go deeper into it and understand how to apply it to our lives so that we can be better followers of you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So Acts chapter nine is where we are. Let me give you a little bit of the background. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about this guy named Stephen. He was stoned to death. He was a, a, a wonderful follower of Jesus. He was a deacon and uh, he was stoned to death. And as he was being stoned to death, you may recall there was a young man who was a Pharisee who was responsible for watching the coats. He was the coat guy. He watched approvingly of Stephen's death, and he was trusted with making sure nobody got their coat stolen while it happened, and his name was Saul, and you may remember that. And then Luke takes a little break from that story, and we cut scene to a new place where we have Philip ministering in Samaria, and he's going around Samaria and sharing the gospel with the Samaritans there, which was an amazing thing because the Jewish people didn't care for the Samaritans that much, but Jesus broke down those barriers, and then an angel tells Philip that he needs to go south of Jerusalem to the road that heads down toward Egypt and Ethiopia, and there he meets this Ethiopian official on the way, shares the gospel with him, explains how Isaiah prophesied about Jesus and this Ethiopian official ends up getting baptized, and then Philip is miraculously carted off to Azotus, where he makes his way up the Mediterranean coast, sharing the good news about Jesus with more and more people there. Well, now we cut back. That was just an interlude, and we cut back to the story of Stephen, only it's not about Stephen this time. It's about the guy that was watching the coats. It's about this young man named Saul. And so while Philip was making his way up from Azotus up to Caesarea Maritima, we read this about Saul. Luke says, meanwhile... Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. It's interesting that a lot of people think Saul's name was changed to Paul when he eventually sees Jesus and, and Jesus has this miraculous experience. Spoiler alert, by the way, if you didn't know where the story was going. I'm sure most of you heard it. But actually, Saul would have had a Jewish name and a Roman name. His Jewish name was Saul, like the king, Saul, the first king of Israel. And his Roman name was Paul. And in fact, after Paul's conversion, he's continued to call Saul and, and referred to in a very positive sense as Saul. So it's not like Saul was the bad version and Paul is the good version. It's just two different names. And Jewish people would often take on a Roman name so that for legal purposes and in Gentile areas, they could utilize their Roman name. But that's just an aside. It's amazing to think about how evil this man Saul, who we know as the Apostle Paul, really was. Absolutely pure evil. This isn't a coworker you don't like. This isn't a kid that's mean to you at school. Saul had more in common with Hitler than with any of your enemies. I mean, this guy wanted to be 
a mass murderer. And in fact, he was effectively a mass murderer. He, he didn't just want to kill when it was absolutely necessary. He was eager to kill the Lord's followers. He uttered threats with every breath, the text says. It means it's all he talked about. That's all he could talk about. It's how he wanted to kill Christians. I wanted to track down Christians with every breath to the point where I'm sure the people around him were like, dude, Paul or Saul, give it a break, man. Enough. All you talk about is killing Christians all the time. It's like, we get it. That's your thing. That's what it was like. Every breath he uttered. Uh, last week, we were in small group, and there's a guy in our small group that's getting ready for a marathon, another marathon. It's not me. Don't worry. And it will never be me. And we were joking around about people that do marathons, and there's a really bad joke that I probably shouldn't share, but I will. And it goes like this. And you don't have to, you don't have to laugh. I know it's really bad. But the joke goes, how can you tell if someone is a marathon runner? And the answer is, don't worry, they'll tell you. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but the idea is that's all they talk about. Now, someone else in our group uh, pointed out that a lot of times you see those bumper stickers that have the you know, numbers on the back that show how the, whatever distance they went, whether it was a half marathon or marathon or ultra marathon or, or whatever, you know, and how they want to get a, a sticker that says 0.0, but good for you or something like that. Saul was that way about killing Christians. It's all he talked about. It's all he, wanted to, all he ever wanted to talk about. He uttered with every breath threats against Christians. And he was so obsessed with it. You gotta understand how obsessed this guy was. He, he went to the high priest and wanted extra authority to be able to hunt down more people. In fact, in verse two, it says he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus. So he wants the high priest to write letters to Damascus to give authority for Saul to come in, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way that he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Now, a couple things to notice here. One is that they aren't called Christians yet. They're called followers of the way. They aren't called Christians until a couple chapters later. In chapter 11 in Antioch, they're first called Christians. In fact, it's not even the Christians that start calling themselves Christians. They were called Christians by other people. And that's because Christian was probably a derogatory phrase. It was like little Christ. So, you know, those are little Christs running around. And so they were, it was probably an insult, actually. And the Christians took it on as a badge of honor, and now that's what we are all known as today. But back at this time, in Acts chapter 9, they were known as Christians. They were called followers of the way. And I kind of like that. I like the way. I like, I like that idea. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so that's, that's what these people were. They were followers of the way. And I think that's really neat. But Saul wants to hunt down these people, and the other thing that's worth noting here is that Luke says he wants to hunt down both men and women and bring them back to Jerusalem to ultimately put them to death, to, to torture them, persecute them, and put them to death. And that's very interesting because oftentimes in Scripture, most of the time in Scripture, when you see in a modern translation where it says men and women or brothers and sisters, the actual word in the Greek is going to be something like anthropos. It's going to be just the word for man or mankind, but but throughout history, oftentimes, the masculine form of the word has been used generically to just refer to all people. And so you've probably heard the word mankind. Well, you, you should know mankind doesn't just mean the men kind. It means men and women kind. And so now we say humankind. But, but you, you get the idea that the masculine is often used generically. And so many times in Scripture where, uh, where the Greek might say men or brothers, 
we understand from the context that that's not just referring to the dudes. That is men and women, brothers and sisters. Not the case here. This is not just men. Luke makes a point, an unusual point, to mention both men and women. He's trying to tell you just how evil this guy is. He's trying to tell you, this guy doesn't just want to wipe out the movement. All the leaders of the way were men. All the apostles were men. If you wanted to wipe out the movement, just take out the leaders. No, no, he wants to kill every person who has even touched this thing. He's evil. From the beginning of human history, there's been this idea of human morality baked in that there is a, a certain amount of responsibility for men in general to be protectors of women in general. It's, it's something that you see in, in the Bible. It's something that you see when, when uh, Paul talks about husbands loving their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for sacrificed his life for there's an element of sacrifice and protection and responsibility where you care for the women and this has been known in most cultures throughout human history it's sort of baked in to what how god designed us that's why on the titanic when it's sinking you what do you say women and children first into the into the lifeboats uh, when we hear about deaths in ukraine we hear about soldiers dying and that's that's tragic and terrible but then we hear about you know women and children dying in a daycare and we think oh that's that's really bad that's terrible. And so there's this sense in which, wow, he doesn't want to just hunt down the leaders. He doesn't want to just hunt down the heads of the households. He doesn't want to just hunt down the men. He's hunting men and women to bring them back, to persecute them, to kill them. Luke wants us to know just how terrible this guy really is. Now, we're not told in chapter 9 how successful Saul was. Because it jumps to this mission to Damascus. And you might read chapter 9 and, and think, well... Saul had the desire to do this, but then he got interrupted on his first journey to Damascus, and he didn't get a chance to actually play any of this out. So he doesn't have any of that baggage. You know, it's, it's bad. Jesus said, if you, if you have that hatred in your heart, it's as if you've committed the murder, but he didn't actually get a chance to go out and do it because he got interrupted on the way. And unfortunately, that is not the case. We learn that later in Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26. Saul actually tells us, he says in 22, I persecuted the followers of the way, hounding some to death, arresting both men and women, there he says it too, and throwing them in prison. In 26, he says, I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus the Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem, authorized by the leading priests. I caused many believers there to be sent to prison, and I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even, get this, chased them down in foreign cities. You know, Jesus' challenge to his disciples was to go into all the world and preach the gospel. To go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, the foreign areas, Jerusalem, that, that city that they were, they, that everything was based around and Israel and Judea, the surrounding area, and Samaria, the people that are nearby, but you don't exactly like them. They're, they're kind of a different neighborhood. But then the ends of the earth was all the, all the foreign places, all the places that you probably wouldn't normally go in your lifetime back then. And that's where Jesus wanted the gospel to go. And you know what Saul is saying here? At this point, usually called Paul. In Acts chapter 26, he's saying, I chased them down in Jerusalem and in synagogues that were throughout the area, and even in foreign cities. His mission was the same, only for evil. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth, that's how evil Saul was, hunting them down, not content to remove them 
from the Jewish cities and the Jewish areas, but even going into the foreign places to find them wherever they were, like an assassin. So make no mistake, he's been on many trips like this before. He's already, his hands are, are stained with blood. And he's, this is not his first mission, this is just another mission where he's heading off to Damascus. But this one will be different. Look at verse three. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, as is always the case in the Bible, when there are multiple accounts, you get different bits of information handed to you in different places. And so I want to go to another spot where we get a little bit more detail here. In Acts 26, when Saul is relaying his experience, he's talking to a king and he says, about noon, your majesty, as I was on the road, a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shone down on me and my companions. We all fell down and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is useless for you to fight against my will. So we learn from this that it wasn't dark. It wasn't nighttime. It wasn't even getting to dark. It was, it was midday. The sun is high in the sky. And Saul says there was a light that shone brighter than the sun. Have you ever accidentally looked at the sun? It's pretty bright. Yesterday, as I was outside, I heard a fighter jet go overhead. And as is my responsibility as a man, I immediately turned to find that fighter jet as soon as I could to try to identify what it was. And accidentally, because of the direction the sound was coming from, I just whipped my head and looked straight into the sun. And that was not a pleasant experience. I cannot imagine what a light brighter than the sun would look like. But that's what shone down on Saul. And it wasn't just him that saw it. This wasn't an isolated experience for him. Everybody around him saw it, and they all fell down on the ground. In fact, later we'll, we'll see that the others with him, they heard the voice too. It wasn't just Saul that heard the voice. They all fell down. They all heard the voice. The voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he replies in verse five, who are you, Lord? And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Make note of that phrase, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now, why does Jesus say that Saul is persecuting him? Why doesn't he just say, why are you persecuting my followers, man? Those are my people. Why are you persecuting? No, why are you persecuting me? As far as we know, Saul hadn't actually met Jesus before this time. Certainly didn't recognize the voice, although I don't, I don't know what it sounded like exactly. But it's interesting to me that what Jesus talks about here, why are you persecuting me, is almost the, the flip side of the coin of what he told his disciples in Matthew chapter 25. When he said, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. He's talking there about helping people. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, and there's an example where he says brothers, but we translate it brothers and sisters because we know it doesn't just mean the guys. You were doing it to me. And so we see the principle reversed here. And it really makes sense. Jesus calls the church his body. We, we are united with him when we believe in Jesus. Something happens to us, and it's like it's happening to him. So when someone persecutes Christians, they're persecuting Christ. When someone does something good for Christians, it's like they're doing it for Christ. When you mistreat another Christian, it's like you're mistreating Christ. When you lie or cheat or steal or, or badmouth another Christian, 
It's as if you're doing that to Jesus himself because they're part of his body. Maybe that's why later on, Saul would go on to write to the Christians in Galatia, therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. There's something special to how you treat other Christians because they're a part of Jesus' body. They are united with him and how you treat other Christians, whether for good or for bad, is actually how you're treating Christ. And that's why he can say, why are you persecuting me? Saul was hunting them down, killing them, and he was doing it to Jesus. And so Jesus doesn't say, why are you doing this to my followers? He says, why are you doing this to me? And that's got some weight to it, doesn't it? Doesn't that make you think about how you treat other Christians? You know, some of the the greatest damage that's been done in churches has been because of friendly fire. It's often not outsiders that attack the church that cause issues in churches. It's insiders attacking each other. And when they mistreat other Christians, they're mistreating Christ. Now, if we get back to the story of Saul here, Jesus gives him instructions similar to what Philip got last week when we talked about how God often just gives us the next step. That is literally what Saul gets right here. Go into Damascus and await further instructions. That's effectively what Saul is told. And so in verse seven, the men with Saul, they stood speechless for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. Saul picked himself up the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. It's interesting to me that his companions, they they saw the light, they fell to the ground. They were speechless. They heard the sound. They didn't know where it was coming from and they didn't even bother to help him up. He had to pick himself up from the ground. Because they were so dumbfounded by what they had just experienced, the incredible thing that they just witnessed. And really, there are some incredible parallels here to the story we talked about with Philip and the Ethiopian official. There's some great similarities, and there's some interesting differences. Both of these men, the Ethiopian and Saul, are on a journey. Both of them are interrupted by a message from God. In Saul's case, directly from Jesus. In the Ethiopian's case, a message through Philip. Both are traveling with companions who witnessed something miraculous. The Ethiopians' companions witnessed Philip being transported to another city, to Azotus. And Saul's companions witnessed the miraculous thing that happened to him. So there was no denying it. It was not like anybody could say, oh, Saul had a seizure. Oh, this just affected him. He, He had a hallucination or whatever it was. He fell off his horse and knocked his head. No, no, no. They all saw it and were affected by it. So they knew this was real. This wasn't just a Saul thing. So there are some interesting similarities, but there are also some interesting differences. One man, the Gentile, was seeking after God as best he knew how. The other man, a Jew, was seeking after God's people to try to kill them. One man received a thorough gospel message and was even baptized on his journey. The other man was given a good scare and told to wait for more information. One man continued on rejoicing because he met Jesus The other man continued on blind because he met Jesus. Isn't that interesting? I believe that Luke put these two stories like this in this order back to back so that we would notice the similarities and the contrast here. And at the very least, what I think it tells us is the lengths that God is willing to go to bring his grace to people and to reach a broad movement of people that we might never consider. He goes after the Samaritans with Philip. He goes after the Ethiopian with Philip. He goes after Saul, this guy who's killing all of God's own people, God's family members, the body of Christ. And yet God intentionally reaches out to him. 
It's just an example of the length God will go in his grace. It's interesting that the ailment chosen for Saul is blindness because it really speaks to the spiritual blindness that he has had all along. Think about the fact that Saul, in the process of hunting down and interrogating, which he talks about, these Christians would have heard the gospel message over and over and over again. Would have heard how Jesus fulfilled all these prophecies that Saul knew very well. Saul studied under Gamaliel. Saul was a well-trained Jewish scholar in the Torah. He knew the prophecies. He didn't even have to go look them up. And he heard over and over again from these Christians who he was seeking to kill. And in many cases, successfully, he heard about the fulfilled prophecy. He heard about the miracles. He saw testimony after testimony after testimony of people talking about Jesus and how all this was real and all this was true. And he still rejected it. He could have been like Nicodemus. Nicodemus who saw what was going on understood there was something to this, knew the, the law well and understood that there was some connection here to Jesus or Jairus, the synagogue official who understood that, that there was something special about Jesus or the Bereans, the, the people of Berea, the Jewish people in Berea, when they heard the message of the gospel, they didn't immediately reject it. They went to their synagogue. They pulled out all their scrolls. They looked at all the prophecies and they went, this is real. This is true. Saul had every opportunity to do the same thing, every chance. And he willingly rejected it. In fact, he went the other way and said, I'm going to stamp this out. That's how evil this guy was. Back in verse 9, Acts chapter 9, verse 9. Saul, blinded now, a very fitting punishment, remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now, there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street, to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so we can see him, so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias. I love that. But Lord, do you know what you're saying? I've heard many people Talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. Now, one thing I want to clear up right away. This is not the Ananias of Ananias and Sapphira. That couple lived in Jerusalem. This is Ananias of Damascus. Ananias just means favored of the Lord. It was a common name. So this was just another guy named Ananias. But how would you like to get that message? You know that guy you've heard about? Really bad. Loves to kill people like you. I want you to go to the street where he's at right now. I want you to go to the house where he's at right now. I want you to go right up next to him. I want you to put your hands on him. Think about the significance of that. Think about being told by God that you are to walk up to your worst enemy, the one who hates you more than anything, and to lovingly put your hands on them to be the administer of a miracle in their life. To be the channel through which God will heal this person by his power. That's what Ananias was being told. And Ananias is thinking, you've got to be kidding me. The way he said it was, but Lord. But what he meant was, you've got to be kidding me. You really want me to go walk up to this guy? I mean, really, God, isn't blindness for him the best thing that's ever happened to us? 
Let's just leave them like that and we'll be way better off. I mean, if I were in Ananias' shoes, I'd be like, something bad happened to my enemy? Woohoo! And Ananias is thinking, I, I, God, do you really know what you, what you want here? Have you ever had a moment like that, a, a but Lord moment? Like, but Lord, really? You want me to do that? Are you, are you sure, God? Are you absolutely sure about this? But God says in verse 15, go. For Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. So the message of the gospel has largely gone to the Jewish people and God is saying, I want it to go to Gentiles. I want it to go to royalty. And he'll, he'll bring it to the house of Israel as well. Really? That guy? A chosen instrument, God? This guy, the worst person we could ever think of, he's gonna bring the good news to Gentiles and to royalty? That doesn't sound like a very good plan. But this is what God loves to do. He loves to use unexpected things to do amazing things, to, to make beauty out of ashes. In fact, it was Saul who would later tell the Christians in Corinth that it's God who loves to use things the world sees as foolish to bring to shame what the world thinks is wise. God chooses things despised by the world to bring down what the world considers important. That way he gets the glory. No one could say, that guy Saul, what a guy. He did God some huge favors. Like, boy, when God got him on his team, man, he got an A player. Like, no, no, this is, this is the opposite of what you would expect God to use. And yet it's exactly what he goes after. The disciples were bad enough. They weren't well-educated, most of them. They came from a, a broad array of individuals. You had disciples of Jesus who were zealots, who were tax collectors, who were prostitutes. You had all sorts of people you would not expect to be part of that crew. But for Saul, Saul was especially bad. For Saul, God reached down to the bottom of the barrel and just pulled up scum and said, I'm gonna make that into the greatest missionary this world has ever seen. That guy is gonna be known as like the amazing apostle Paul. Not because of Paul, not because of Saul, but because of what God would do through him. And that leads me to one of my main points for today, a main takeaway for today, which is you're never too far from God to become a part of his family. You're never too far from God to become a part of his family. This is a picture of how far God's grace extends. You may think you're a bad person. You may think you've done a lot of bad in your life. You may think that God doesn't want anything to do with you, that he's done with you, that he's abandoned you. And I can understand feeling that way. I get it. But if you hear nothing else from the story of Saul, you should, you should see how terrible this guy was. And yet God still welcomed him with open arms. He loved him. He pursued him. He extended his grace to him. Yes, we can be rotten creatures. And even if we didn't act on those actions, we've all thought about them. We've all dwelled on them. We all have murderous hearts. Every single one of us. And yet God looks at that and says, I still want them to be part of my family. Even with all they've done, all they've said, and all they've thought. And if he can do it for Saul, he can do it for you. You are never too far from God to become a part of his family. It's a very challenging message for Ananias to deliver to Saul. I can't imagine being him in that moment, having to walk up to him, and say those words. But Ananias learned a valuable lesson that day too. And we need to hear it as well. 
And that is that you're never, you're, you're, you can never be sure someone else won't become part of God's family. You can never be sure someone else won't become part of God's family. Look at verse 16. God says this to Ananias, and this must have been sweet justice for him. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Now that right there, Ananias must have thought, oh good, that's fair. With everything this guy's done, I mean, he deserves a little bit of that. Verse 17 says, so Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized and afterward he ate some food and regained his strength. Now, Ananias got to this house and you have to understand about these stories in the, in the Bible. They're all condensed. So we're getting a summary of what happened. Everything is true, but it's not everything that happened. And so it's not like Ananias just showed up and that's the first thing he did. No, he showed up, knocked on the door, a lot of anxiousness in his heart, I'm sure, wondering what he's going to find on the other side. Door opens, and it's Saul and his whole crew. It's the Christian hunters right there in front of him. And he goes inside, and they have a conversation. In fact, some of the stuff that Ananias says here makes me think that he had already had a, a good talk with Saul. He calls him brother already. Brother Saul, he says. And he's heard his story about the Lord appearing to him on the road. So he knows details of the story. They've had a conversation. They've talked through this here. And Saul was in there. He was praying to God already. He had already been transformed in a sense. But he also had been through a terrible experience because not just that miraculous encounter on the road, but have you ever, have you ever believed something for a long time very sincerely and then found out you were wrong? And the gut punch that that can deliver, that's what Saul went through. And so the text says that he went for three days without food or water. He didn't eat or drink for three days. His body was wasting away. He was depressed. He was depressed because he realized all of a sudden, oh my goodness, everything I've been doing this whole time, these terrible things I've been a part of, I was wrong. How can I go on? How can I live? How can I eat? How can I, how can I do anything else? I'm just going to shrivel away and die. And now I'm blind. I don't think it was the blindness that really got to him. I think it was the realization of what he had been a part of and how evil that was. And it suddenly hit him and he was convicted by it. And he must have been thinking to himself, I cannot continue living. So he stops eating. He stops drinking. And that's why in the text we see that afterward, after he regains his sight, he eats some food and he regains his strength because his body was wasting away. Here comes this man, Ananias, in with a message from God that effectively means God's not done with you yet. He's got more for you to do. He still loves you. He's got grace for you. Here's a miracle for you to prove it. And Saul realizes he's got a new lease on life and a new mission in life. Now, it's interesting to me that God could have just spoken to Saul again three days later and been like, okay, you learned your lesson. You've been dwelling on this enough. I see you're super depressed. You're not eating. You're not drinking. You're going to die from starvation pretty soon here. Um, all right, your sight comes back. I'm going to speak to you again, but he doesn't. He chooses to use another follower of the way to come be the messenger of grace into Saul's life. And isn't that interesting? God could have just done it himself. But instead, he chooses to use another person. And he goes to Ananias. Why? Because it's not just about Saul. There's another man involved in this equation here. There's another person here, Ananias, who needs to grow, who needs to learn 
What I mentioned earlier, that you can never be sure someone else is so far away from God that they can't become a part of his family. So you can never be sure that you're too far from God to become a part of his family, and you can never be sure someone else is too far from God to become a part of his family. And that's the lesson that Ananias needed to learn that day. So he could come in and see for himself. This isn't just about Saul. This is about Ananias growing. And you know what? This is how God still works today. There are a lot of things God could do himself and way more effectively, but he chooses to work through you and me. Peter tells us that we are stewards of God's grace. God gives us grace to deliver to others. God gave Ananias grace to deliver to Saul. Ananias got to be the the agent of healing in Saul's life. Who are you going to deliver God's grace to today? Who are you gonna deliver God's grace to this week? That's how he wants to work through you. He doesn't actually want to do it himself. He wants to include you in the process. It's a two-for-one special. Saul gets God's grace. Ananias gets God's grace. Saul grows. Ananias grows. They both learn something really important. Saul learns that he's not so far from God in his depressed state, three days of no eating or drinking, that, that he can't become a part of God's family. And Ananias learns you can never count someone else out from being a part of God's family. And what does that mean for us today? That person that maybe you've given up on, maybe it's time to start praying for them again. That person that you you think there's no chance and so you never bother to bring anything up or or share anything about your faith or or what you believe. You just kind of keep it all all sort of secular when you talk with them. Well, maybe that's not what they need. Maybe they're more interested than you think they are. Maybe they're hurting more than you think they are. Maybe the way they act comes from a place of of pain. You can never be sure that someone else could not become a part of God's family. You can't count them out. If you are someone who has put yourself in that category of unredeemable, here's my message for you today. If God is willing to pursue the worst person I can imagine and invite them to be a part of his family, then God is absolutely willing to accept you. Not on the basis of your merits, not because you're so wonderful, but because Jesus Christ came to this earth and died to take all of your bad, which is really bad, on himself and pay for it so you don't have to. God doesn't accept you because you're so great. He accepts you because Jesus is so great. And Jesus wants to give his righteousness to you. It's a gift. It's a free gift. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. After you receive that gift, he wants you to live like you've been given something amazing. And so you should do all sorts of good in this world in his name, and be God's steward of grace to other people, just like Ananias was. But that's not what makes you right with God. Saul did nothing to earn God's favor. It was only because Jesus Christ paid for all of his sins, and they were tremendous. Paul, at one point, calls himself the chief of sinners. He was in the C-suite, the COS, the chief of sinners. How'd you like that title? And if God can reach the chief of sinners, then he can absolutely love and accept and forgive you. And all you have to do is talk with him and say, God, I know that I'm a sinful person. I don't understand how you could possibly accept me, but because of what Jesus did for me, I ask you to forgive me and to have me be a part of your family. And his word promises us that he will do that. Would you bow your heads with me right now? Just pause for a minute. First thing I want you to do If you are a follower of the way, 
Just take a moment and thank God for saving a sinner like you. If you are not a follower of Jesus yet, you don't have a relationship with him, you wouldn't say that you do. You're not sure if you've ever really trusted in him and not the good things that you do to somehow earn his salvation. I would encourage you to take a moment right now and pray to God and just say, Lord, I get that I'm a bad person and I'm messed up and sometimes I put myself in that category of unredeemable. But I know that's not true because of what you did for Saul. And I ask you to do the same thing for me. Would you remove the scales of spiritual blindness from my eyes so that I can see you at work in my life and in this world? Forgive me for my sins. Help me to be part of your family, Lord. I wanna live for you. That makes you a follower of the way too. And finally, maybe there are some of you here who've given up hope on somebody. You've wanted to trust in Jesus. You care about them. Or maybe there's someone that you actually don't care about, but you know you should because Jesus said, love your enemies. And you need to pray for them right now. Pray that God would bring people into their life to share the good news about Jesus with them so their life could be transformed. Pray good things for them. Not that God would, would judge or condemn them, but that God would reach out in love and show them how much he cares for them. And maybe, just maybe, you are meant to be the steward of God's grace in their life. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this book that Luke wrote down for us so we could understand this incredible thing that happened in Saul's life. I pray that you would teach us through it, Lord. Help us to live differently today because of all that you've done for us, Lord. You have given us your grace. You've made us messengers of your grace. And so now, Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we worship you for your amazing grace. In your name we pray.